Do you remember being at a pep rally? For those of you that are younger, you might remember it well, and you know it well. For those of you that are older, you have to think back a little bit, but you remember what a high school pep rally was like. Uh, the high school that I went to, General Douglas MacArthur High School in Levittown, New York, uh, didn't have much to brag about, but we were great at pep rallies. We had the best pep rallies. We were just a run-in-the-mill suburban high school, uh, average in every way, but our pep rallies, that sort of spirit week, was the best. Uh, it was this one time where you were actually proud that you went to MacArthur, that you were a general. It was the one time where hundreds of kids would pile into the school gymnasium and they would paint their faces and they would make signs and hold up banners and the band would be playing and cheerleaders did whatever it is that cheerleaders do and everybody was excited and psyched. It was this perfect sort of moment. We had the best pep rallies. We also had the worst football team you could possibly imagine, okay? Uh, to give you an idea of how bad we were, I was on the football team. Uh, and that should give you an insight into the quality of this football program. We were the General MacArthur Generals, and, and we had, no exaggeration, the worst football team. Uh, to, to give you an idea, we were so bad, we were the kind of team that got yelled at even when we scored. Um, because we scored so rarely that if we ever got a touchdown, it didn't matter if we got blown out in that game, we, we stormed the field, we cleared the benches, high-fiving one another, touchdown dances. Even if we got beat, the coach was drenched in Gatorade because we, we just couldn't believe it. I remember the coach screaming at us saying, would you act like you've done this before? This is embarrassing. The other team is laughing at us. That's the kind of team we were, right? Homecoming was the same story every year. You had this giant pep rally with all this frenzied excitement and spirit, and then we would get crushed in the most pathetic game you could possibly imagine, right? Every year, same story. Great pep rally, horrible outcome. And it didn't take long before you began to realize we were essentially making a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. We were all bark and no bite, we were a lot of excitement with lots of high expectations and huge high hopes, but when you saw the outcome, what you realized was that all you were doing was setting yourself up for this huge, giant letdown and disappointment. Okay. Samaro, that's what I think of when I think of the first disciples who followed Jesus Christ and went so far as to declare that he was the Messiah. That he was the Messiah. Now, we, that word may not mean much for us, but the word Messiah was a really loaded word. It was a word that the moment you let it out of your lips, it carried with it all the hopes and expectations of not just a high school full of high schoolers, but an entire nation of people. For generations, one generation after another, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this word was everything you hoped in. Things are bad now but Messiah's coming. Things are not great, but Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. It, it was the word that carried. It was pregnant with all the hopes and dreams of the people. Messiah was the rallying cry of Israel's pep rally. And if you get that, you can then imagine what a giant letdown and disappointment it was to see the Jesus that you called Messiah crucified on a Roman cross. 
You can see and feel what a letdown it was when Rome did to Jesus what they did to all the other so-called messiahs. When they crushed him, when they mopped the floor with him. Great pep rally, horrible outcome. It didn't take long for them to feel like they had essentially made a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. And if it were not for what happened on that Easter morning, all would have been lost. But at that point, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to do two things. First, I want us to look at the word Messiah. And when we say that word, I want you to be thinking pep rally. I want you to be thinking all the hopes and dreams and expectations of a people. And then I want us to look at Jesus and what happened to him. And I want you to be thinking outcome. How did things pan out for Jesus and for the people after the pep rally? Okay, so I want you to be thinking Messiah, and I want you to be thinking outcome. We'll take a moment to pray, ask the Lord for help as we consider those things, and we'll get to work. Let's pray. Our Father, you have made Jesus Lord and Christ, and everything is for him, and we pray that even our time this morning in your word would give us a fresh appreciation of this truth, of what it is we're actually saying when we declare Jesus Christ. Pray that you would open our eyes to your word, open our ears to it, open our hearts to it, open our minds to it, that you would remove the sin and the clutter and all the things that keep us away from you and bring us wholly to you. We'd even pray for the grace to let our minds stick with things that are said and truth and wade through them so that we might have the reward of listening and hearing and believing, which is a closer walk with you. Help us, O Lord, this day, we'd ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first pep rally. So here's the word, Messiah. The word Messiah just literally means anointed one. That's all it meant. And the idea was that God would one day choose one person, set him apart. He was going to be the chosen one. He was going to be the anointed one who would bring about God's final deliverance for his people. That one day Yahweh would send the Messiah, and the Messiah would bring about the final deliverance of God's people. So here's the backstory to that. What had happened was that God had made some incredible promises to his people. Way back as early as Genesis 17, he calls this man named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you great, I'm going to make you into this enormous nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the whole earth. So it's a great promise. And God fulfills that promise. Israel becomes this great nation. And one of the kings, one of the greatest kings named David, gets another promise from God. 2 Samuel 7, where God shows up to David and he says, David, I'm going to make you great. And I'm going to make your name great. So that in 2014 AD, they'll say David and everyone will know who you're talking about. And and I'm going to give you a throne. And it's going to be an everlasting throne. And one of your offspring is going to rule forever in my kingdom. This was the promise that was given. It was a great promise. There was just one problem. David's heir was not on on the throne. Babylon was. And then years later, David's son wasn't on the throne. Persia was. And then years later, David's offspring wasn't on the throne. The Romans were. And so all this time, you had this promise that this throne was coming and this son of David was coming, and yet all that you saw was the Babylonians coming and the Persians coming and the Romans coming. 
You see, as you read the story of Israel, what happened is that they turned to great sin rather than to the Lord. And God essentially let the foreign pagan empires come and rule over his people. They dragged them away into captivity and exile. And now you had pagan idolaters ruling over God's people. They were supposed to be the blessing to the whole earth. They were being ruled by the powers on earth. But there was still hope. Because it wouldn't always be this way. One day, he would come. Who would come? Messiah would come. The anointed one would come. The chosen one would come. And when he came, he would be king over all the kings. He would be Lord over all the lords. And Messiah would come and make everything that was wrong right. He would turn the world right side up again and he would remove all wrongs and through his reign, Yahweh would reign again and everything would be made right. So they, they didn't just have some kind of vague, misty, foggy idea of Messiah. They had some specific hopes of what Messiah would do. Let me give you, for example, three of them. First, they expected that when Messiah came, he would overthrow the pagan rulers. And listen to me. When they expected this Messiah to bring about salvation, to overthrow the pagan rulers, this was not some kind of invisible thing that was going to be tucked away in their heart. When they said, I'm saved, they, they weren't saying some kind of thing that's going on invisibly in your heart. They could touch salvation all throughout their story. They knew what it was like to be ruled by pagans, and they also knew what it was like for God to kick those pagans out. They had very tangible stories. So, for example, they knew what it was like to be under Pharaoh. And when God sent a Savior named Moses, salvation, being saved, wasn't this invisible secret thing going on in their heart. No, they saw the bodies of Pharaoh's army wash up on the shore. They knew what it was like to be under the Philistines. But they also knew what Samson did with the jawbone of a donkey when he killed a thousand of them and heaped their bodies up into a pile. They knew what it was like when David went up against the Goliath, the giant, and they knew what he did with a sling and a stone. They knew what it was like to go into Canaan and have all these enemies there, and they remembered what Joshua did in his campaigns when he wiped them out. Salvation was a very real idea for them. And so when they were saying that there's coming one who's greater than David, who's better than Joshua, who's stronger than Moses... Oh, they knew exactly what Messiah would do. They were expecting Messiah is going to come with a sword, and it would not take long before that sword was dripping with the blood of the Romans. Don't miss that. They knew Messiah was coming, and they knew that it would not take long before the sword of Messiah would be dripping with the blood of Romans, because that's how God had always saved. He crushed the enemy, and the Messiah, the greater David, the better Joshua, Oh, can you imagine how he would defeat the enemies? And when he does, know this, Israel's Messiah will be king over all the kings, Lord over all the lords. In fact, this is what the Old Testament promised. In, in Psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 72, is the idea that when Yahweh's Messiah came, he would rule and through him Yahweh would rule. And Yahweh wasn't just one God tucked away in the desert land of Israel. No, Yahweh was the earth's king. And so if Messiah was going to rule, that means that Yahweh would again be the earth's king. That means that Messiah, Israel's Messiah, would also be the world's Lord. 
Israel's Messiah would also be the earth's Lord. So the first expectation they had of Messiah is he's going to just clean house. God help those pagan guys when, when Messiah comes. The second expectation they had was when Messiah comes, he's going to rebuild the temple. So that was this other thought that they had. David's son had built a temple, but the better son of David, the true son of David would come, and he was going to rebuild a temple that would never be destroyed. The Babylonians couldn't touch it like they had done Solomon's temple, or, or the Romans couldn't touch it. No one was going to be able to touch it. This temple would last forever. And the third hope that they had was that when Messiah came, he would usher in this final age, the age of peace, the age of redemption, the age of justice, when there would be no more injustice. Exile would be over. God would have finally gotten over his anger for our sins. We'd be brought back. We'd be forgiven. Everything would be right again. Oh, and when the prophets speak of this age, they use the most beautiful poetic language. They, they talk of it like the time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, when the cow will graze next to the lion, when a little infant will stick his hand down the hole of the snakes and play with the serpents and no harm will come. That's the age that Messiah will bring. That's what Messiah would do on the earth. And so they waited. When the Assyrians came, they waited. When the Babylonians came, they waited. When the Persians came, they waited. When the Greeks came, they waited. When the Romans came, they waited. And if you've ever waited on the Lord, you know how hard that can be. And so this hope in Messiah would ebb and flow. It would wax and wane. It would be strong at points and be just a bare pulse at some points. But it never disappeared. There was always this undercurrent of hope. The time would come. Messiah would come. It won't always be this way. And some things happened where this stream of hope started to pick up some speed. And there was this sort of energy and frenzy. And it was almost like things in Israel were starting to boil over just at the time when a child was born in Bethlehem named Jesus. And right from the start, everyone had huge hopes. Right from his birth on, everyone had huge hopes for this child, for this man, Jesus. In fact, the, the gospels sort of give us a glimpse into that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all paint a picture that when Jesus had arrived, just at this point where the hope of Messiah was boiling over in Israel, when the climate was ripe and ready for a Messiah, and Jesus came, you should have just sensed the hope. In Luke 2, we meet this old man named Simeon. If you've read the Christmas stories, Simeon is in the temple, and God had promised Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Listen to Luke 2, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Just a quick word there. We say Jesus Christ so often, we almost think of it like his last name, right? You've got a J. Thomas, Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. Christ was just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. That's all Christos was. Christos was just Messiah translated. Christ just meant Messiah. And so Simeon had been given this promise that he would not see death until he saw the Christos, until he saw God's Messiah. And so Luke 2 tells us 
that Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus into the temple, this old man who's been waiting his whole life, who's been promised that he's not going to die until he sees it, takes one look at baby Jesus and says, I can die now. I can, I can die now because I have seen the light to the Gentiles. I have seen the blessing that had come for the whole earth. I've seen the glory of God's people. Now I can finally die. It was that same hope that you see in John 1. In John 1, you had these disciples of a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had come, and again, the boiling point had reached. So everyone's looking for a Messiah. And John had to keep telling people, I am not the Christ. I want you to hear this. I'm not the Christ. I've just come to prepare the way. And so one day he looks at Jesus and he says, there is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And some of John's disciples hear this, and so they start following Jesus. And listen to what it says when they started to follow him. John 1 verse 40. One of the two who heard John, that's the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Listen to the first thing he does. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, parentheses, which means Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He, he finds Jesus and the first thing he does is he runs to his brother Peter and he says, we found him. He's here. The Christ, the Messiah is here at last. It's the same hope that's sort of growing and building later in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus is standing with his disciples and he says, tell me, who do the people say that I am? What do they think about me? And all kinds of speculations and answers are thrown. Some think you're a prophet and Jeremiah and Elijah and all these answers. And Jesus turns it to them and says, but you, who do you say that I am? And listen to Peter's answer in Matthew 16, verse 15 and 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Don't miss what he's saying. What's he saying? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And the hope is growing and it's boiling over. Or listen to what it says in Matthew 11. The scene there is John the Baptist, who had told everyone, I'm not the Christ, is now rotting in a jail cell. He had spoken out. He had the audacity to speak out against King Herod's sexual sins. And so the king didn't particularly take to that. And so he throws John into a prison. And now John is sitting in prison and he's sort of scratching his head because this isn't making sense. What's not making sense? Well, when Messiah comes, he's going to throw out the bad guys and lift up the good guys. But I'm stuck in prison and Herod's still on his throne if you're still the Messiah, then what is going on here? And so listen to what he says, John, Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, here's what I want you to go and tell John. I want you to tell him what you're seeing. That the blind are seeing. That the deaf are hearing. The lame are walking. The dead are being raised again. I want you to go and tell John these things. And then he adds this great sentence. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. That is to say, John... I know with your expectations of what Messiah is going to do, none of this seems to make sense. 
But John, blessed are those who are not offended if I don't live out what their expectations of Messiah are. Blessed, John, are those who are not offended by me. This hope is growing. Is, is he the one? Could this really be? It's, it, it might actually be him. I mean, if you were in the first century, you would have heard the buzz on the streets. This man, some of the crowds would say, has authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees, not like our other leaders. When he says something, things get done. When he speaks, winds calm down. When he shows up, demons run away. Imagine what he could do with that kind of authority to our enemies. When, when this man shows up, there's power, there's miracles. And, and, and think of this. If you're thinking Messiah is better than the saviors of the Old Testament, imagine what someone with Jesus' power could do to the Romans. Right? Moses parted a sea. He, he didn't ever raise a man from the dead, and he was able to part a sea. Joshua never made a blind man see, and yet he had conquest over the whole land. Imagine what a man with Jesus' power could do. No one's spoken with this kind of authority. No one's had this kind of power. It was clear even to his haters that he was doing signs that had come from God. Something was happening, and this sort of boiling point had reached where, could it be? Is he really the one? I think this is it. It's him. And so you know what they did? They had a pep rally. You think I'm making that up? I'm not. They, no joke, had a pep rally. In John's gospel, it tells us that Jesus walks into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in the way that the Old Testaments had prophesied that the king would come and listen to what they do. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Samarod, you know what that is? That's a pep rally. That's what they were doing. The, the other passages tell us that people ran to the streets, they took off their cloaks, and they lined the streets so that not even the donkey's feet would hit the ground. And, and they, what did they do? They were doing the wave. This is where the wave started. It was with palm branches. Ladies were shouting, give me an M, M, give me an E, S-S-I-A-H. This is Messiah. That's what they did. In fact, the ESV study Bible that some of you have. Listen to this note from there. It says, By waving palm branches, a national Jewish symbol, the people hailed Jesus as the Davidic king, hoping that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Most of the crowd probably understood the title King of Israel in a political and military sense, still hoping that Jesus would use his amazing powers to resist Roman rule and lead the nation to independence. I mean, this is what's happening. Everyone, I mean, they, they have showed up in the streets to line the streets with palm branches and waves and cheers and shouts because now at last the king, the Messiah, has come. Great pep rally. And if you get that, then you get how crushing it was when just a few days later this same guy was hung on a cross, left to die. Then you get what a letdown it was that we had made all this hoopla for him 
And he went out the same way all the other so-called messiahs went out. If you could, for a second, put yourself in their shoes, you'd see great pep rally, horrible outcome. Right? Don't gloss over this too quickly. Put yourself for a moment in their shoes and think about this. How popular would Moses' story have been if the Pharaoh had caught up with the army and slaughtered them all by the Red Sea? How much would we tell of David's story if the giant did what you expected the giant to do? How great would Joshua have been if the land consumed them rather than them conquesting the land? Listen, put yourself in their shoes and realize, here's the point. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he would crush the Romans. He didn't crush the Romans. He got crushed by the Romans. And listen, when the Romans crushed you, they, they didn't just hold back. They went to work on you. They made a point out of you. I mean, when they killed you, they made sure you were naked and hung up in the sky for everyone to see. So it wasn't just that they killed you. They mopped the floor with you. They ran up the score on you, right? This is the fourth quarter. You're winning by 60, and they still throw the Hail Mary just to make a point, just to embarrass you, just to humiliate you. In fact, that's what the cross was. The cross was Rome's way of saying, you don't mess with us. Listen, come on, there's, there's lots of ways to kill your enemies. But the cross is a particular way. It's Rome's way of saying, if you cross with us, if you cross us, we will literally cross you. It's Rome's way of saying, listen, this is what we do to the enemies of our empire. We hang them up naked in the sky for every passerby to see. So that when Pilate put on top of Jesus' cross that sign that billboard that read, King of the Jews. In his eyes, in Rome's eyes, you know what that was? That was a, an advertisement to the whole empire. This is what we do to the so-called kings of Jews. This is what we do to your so-called messiahs. All the cross did was loudly confirm what everybody already knew. I guess Caesar is still Lord. All the cross did was show them, confirm for them what they already knew. And that is, I guess we're still in exile. I guess God still hasn't forgiven our sins. I guess God's still angry at our people. I guess the pagans still rule the world. It didn't take long, friends, before they realized they had made a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. And if you think I'm exaggerating or making this up, this is why in Luke 24, when the two disciples are walking the seven-mile road, and they're leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus, probably just going back home because what's left here? This is why they say to each other, we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. That's not my translation. That's what came out of their mouths. We had hoped he would have been the one to redeem Israel. And listen, when it came to this, the, the Jewish people were like the MacArthur generals. They hadn't learned their lesson because this, this wasn't the first time this disappointment had happened. This kind of disappointment and letdown had happened many times over because many times false, pretender, fake messiahs had come. If you read the historians, the historians will tell you there was Arganus in 4 AD, the same lifetime as Jesus. The shepherd who rallied a crowd of people around him, and he even crowned himself king and called himself the Messiah before Rome crushed him. 
Or then there was Simon bar Gosheba and Simeon bar Koba and, and these other messiahs, and Rome crushed them too. Rome did what they did to all the so-called messiahs. And here's the thing. When a messiah died, and this wasn't the first time it happened, you had one of two options. Don't miss this. When your Messiah died, you had one of two options. Well, the first thing you would do is you would run and hide because Rome had this nasty habit of not only stringing up the leader but tracking down, hunting down all the followers as well, which is probably what makes sense when you see the disciples after Jesus had died huddled together, scared out of their minds in a locked room because Rome had a nasty habit, habit of not only taking out the leader but of also going after the followers as well. So you had one of two options if you made it out alive. The first option was you found another Messiah. You go, oh, we were sorry. We were wrong about Simon. It's actually Simeon over here. And so you made up a new Messiah. Or you gave up the movement altogether. You either found a new Messiah or you gave up the movement altogether. Let me tell you what you absolutely did not do. What you did not do was continue to refer to the dead guy as Messiah. That makes sense? You might find a new Messiah, you might give up the movement, but what you definitely did not do was continue to refer to the dead guy as Messiah because that would make no sense at all. Let me give you an example. There was a Messiah in Jesus' lifetime, 50 years after or so, named Simon Bargora. He was so popular that he had rounded up not 120 followers like Jesus, but perhaps thousands and thousands of them. In fact, guess what his nickname was? King of the Jews. That's what they called Simon Bargora. The King of the Jews. And when Rome came and crushed the King of the Jews, Simon Bargora, they wanted to make an example out of him. So here's what they did. They brought Simon back to Rome. And they had a huge procession and, and, and parade. And, and if you've ever watched Gladiator, you know this scene where Maximus has won another victory for the Roman Empire. And there's this parade and sacrifices to the gods. That's what it looked like. So they had this great procession, this huge parade. They're going to offer sacrifices to all their gods. But before they do, the climax of the parade is they bring old Simon out. And they drag Simon Bargora, the king of the Jews, through the streets. They scourge him in public for everyone to see. And then they kill him. And when it's announced throughout the empire that the rebellion is put down and that the king of the Jews is dead, there's great shouts in all the land. Great shouts around the parade because it's just another symbol that Rome still rules. Rome's might, Rome's power, Rome's majesty, the empire is still strong and perfectly safe. Now here's the experiment that I've read and would have you think. How ridiculous would it be if Simon Bargora's disciples, some three days later, went around and said, you know what? I think Simon really was the Messiah and really is. Somebody would have looked at them and said, are you crazy? Simon's dead. He, Rome did to him what Rome does to all the messiahs. And if you said, no, 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 listen, I think Simon, however, has been raised and exalted to heaven and is now seated with God, they would have looked at you and said, of course, that's what happens to all the saints and martyrs. That's where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they all are, is with God in heaven. 
And if you said, no, 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 but listen, I really feel forgiven in my heart, like, like he's really close to me, like Simon's still with me, at that point, they would have finally gotten angry with you and said, you know what, go write a psalm and sing a song, but stop this nonsense of Messiah. Because it would have made no sense at all. The Simon Christ movement wouldn't have had any traction whatsoever. Because Simon got crushed by the Romans. It should have been that same way with Jesus of Nazareth. If you went around saying Jesus really is the Messiah, you know what they would have said to you? They would have said, wait a minute. But he didn't beat the Romans. He didn't shed their blood. They shed his blood. They also, remember, took this king of the Jews, dragged him through the streets, scourged him in public, and held him up as a spectacle for all. And they would have said to you, and this Jesus didn't rebuild the temple. And remember, that's what the, the Messiah is supposed to do. In fact, what Jesus did was make these curious sentences about how he's going to destroy the temple. Something that came up again at his trial. This man claimed to destroy the temple, they said. That's not what Messiah does. And this Jesus didn't end in justice. There's no age of peace. If anything, this Jesus is the victim of terrible injustice. Because Rome did what they always do. Here's what I'm saying, Samaro. At just the moment when what these disciples should have done was say, next, right? Let's find another Messiah. This one wasn't the one. Instead, what you find is they run everywhere and say, Jesus is the Christ. Now, just one thing and then we'll be done. Why'd they say that? How come they said that? It's one word. Resurrection. The resurrection is the only reason Jesus Christ didn't join the trash heap of all the other would-be messiahs. Because Jesus was the one messiah who did what the other fakes didn't. He came back when the Romans put him down. He was the one messiah who did what none of the other messiahs had done. If it were not for the resurrection, none of them would have proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. You see, today, skeptics would have us believe that the disciples wanted so badly to see Jesus as messiah that they made up the resurrection. Right? They were so committed to Jesus as messiah, they made up the resurrection. Here's the problem. They didn't make that up with any of the other would-be messiahs. Jesus had 120 guys. Simon Bargora had like 20,000. They didn't make up resurrection. It wasn't even in their thought to claim that Simon had come back. The skeptics have it backwards, friends. The reality is, it's not that they wanted him so badly to be messiah, and so they said they, he rose from the dead. It's that they were convinced he rose from the dead, and so they called him messiah. It's that they were so convinced of the resurrection that they said, he must then be the Messiah. It's because they were convinced that he had done what no other Messiah had done. When they saw him rise from the dead, they said, he is the one. It vindicated all their hopes. The pep rally was not in waste. He actually was the one. And they suddenly started to shift all their beliefs about Messiah to fit around him. Did you notice that? They start to go, you know what? We missed it. We thought the Christ was going to come and beat the enemy. Yes, Christ came to beat the enemy, but it wasn't Rome. It was sin and Satan and death. 
Yes, the Christ had come to rebuild the temple, but it wasn't going to be brick and mortar. It was going to be that God was now going to dwell among his people and put his spirit in us so that we are the temple of the living God. It wasn't going to be this age of peace so that Israel would have a fun time. He was going to bring restoration for all the world. The whole earth was going to be renewed in him. Because Jesus rose, Jesus is the Messiah. You see, because he did what the one thing they couldn't, the the worst thing you could do was put someone to death. That's what Rome could do. What if you came back from death? Now who has power? He did what no other Messiah had done, so they said, he is the Christ. And remember, if he is the Christ, then he is also the world's Lord. He's not just Israel's Messiah. He is the world's Lord. This was the promise of the Old Testament, that the one who came to bring Yahweh's power would rule the whole world. Israel's Messiah is the world's Lord. This is why Peter preaches like he does in Acts 2. Just listen to this verse. Peter stands up in a crowd of 3,000, and he starts telling them about Jesus, and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Then verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You hear both terms there, right? God has made, because he raised him up, Jesus both Lord and Christ. Israel's Messiah is now the world's Lord. Or listen to how Paul will say it in Philippians 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is both Christ and Lord. Because he rose is the only reason why the first disciples went throughout the whole world and said, Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is Lord. Now, there's much for us to think through. Let me give you two takeaways from this, and then we'll be done. Here's the first. I want to say what Jesus said to you. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Remember when John is following Jesus, and he's sitting in a jail cell, and he's scratching his head going, you're not exactly what I imagined. My life hasn't turned out the way I imagined if you are Lord. And what does Jesus say back? John, blessed are those who are not offended by me. What's the point? The point is some of you may be here and you've been following Jesus and yet life hasn't panned out the way that you thought it would. And you're scratching your head going, I, I thought this would go different. I mean, I'm, I'm now a follower of Jesus. I'm going to church. I'm doing all of this. And yet, why is my marriage still hard? Or why am I not married? Or why is this problem not gone away? Or why is this struggle still here? You're scratching your head going, I didn't think this would pan out this way. And Jesus is coming to us as he did to John and saying, I hope that how I define my salvation doesn't offend you. I, I hope that how I express what it means to be Messiah does not offend you. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. It's not that what John wanted in the jail cell was too small. It was, it, it was too big. It was that it was too small. Jesus had come to do something way bigger than remove him from a temporary cell. Jesus had come to bring about salvation for the world. 
And if you're disappointed with a Jesus because work isn't going the way you want it to, or your job isn't going the way you want it to, or marriage isn't going the way you want it to, or life is not going the way you want it to, Jesus is coming to us and saying, blessed are those who are not offended by me, who don't define what Messiah is by their own definitions, but allow me to redefine their expectations of Messiah. And here's the second. If Jesus is Lord then it means you're not. If Jesus is Lord, you're not. Do you know after Peter preached a whole sermon and thousands heard him and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him Christ and Lord. It says 3,000 were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? And the first thing he says, repent and be baptized. Because if you've been living this life not realizing that he's Lord, you need to turn around and repent This is why the first Christians, what they did was they ran everywhere and said, Jesus is Lord. And by implication, that meant Caesar's not. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not. And Jesus would say to us, if I am Lord, that means you're not. That means the things that you want to call the shots about your life, you don't get to call the shots anymore. I'm Lord. That means the other lords and masters you live your life for, they're not lords anymore. It means money's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Hear me. It means your comfort is really not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Your convenience is no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. Your children are no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. Your career, your beauty, your fame, your success, these things are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Peter would say to you, you know what you need to do? You need to repent of every other Lord you've placed above because the first disciple said, we know Because he rose from the dead, he is the Christ. And if he is the Christ, he is the world's Lord. And if he's the world's Lord, I'm not Lord. He is. Because he rose from the dead. And what that begins to show us, and we'll start unpacking this in the weeks to come, that means that resurrection has implications not just for the life after death, but the life before death. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only influences where you're going, but what you're doing right now. It's because he rose that they declared him Messiah and Lord. Let's pray.